You're listening to another episode of the Zag. Eric Soap here. Excited to be joined by NLC North Carolina 2015 fellow Matt Hughes is here. Some interesting, exciting developments in his life have transpired in the last couple of weeks. We want to hear about it. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. All right, Matt, give us a scoop. What is the big news in your life these days? Well, I was uh, just elected to a full term on my uh, town board in Hillsborough, North Carolina. Uh, so that's pretty exciting. I had been appointed in April of 2018. So it's exciting to uh, start a full four-year term and uh, to have that air of legitimacy uh, that comes with uh, being elected. And what should folks know about that town? Well, it's a really small town in the Piedmont in North Carolina, not far from Durham and Chapel Hill. We're pretty uh, equidistant, one of the original colonial capitals of North Carolina. Um, and it is, it's pretty uh, quintessential southern small town. I kind of uh, describe it as a southern version of Stars Hollow for anyone who might have seen Gilmore Girls, which is very uh, apt. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a town where... Um, 7,500 people, so many people know each other. They're very respectful. They're always reaching out. They're always helping one another. And really, it's, it's just one of those places that uh, leaves an impression on you. What was the hardest part of the campaign? Hardest part of the campaign, honestly, was just having to get back into campaign mode. I had run for county commissioner in Orange County in 2016 here in North Carolina. And having to get back into the swing of things with phone banking, canvassing, uh, mail pieces, all of that was was definitely uh, great. I've, I've been active in political campaigns before, so really it was just, you know, warming up and getting back into it. But uh, definitely one of the things I learned from that campaign is to not really take a lot of criticism that you see online or, you know, little slights that you pick up on just because if you do, then you know, it's just going to wear you down and, and it's not going to allow you to be able to focus on what you're trying to do. That's what I was going to ask. We've, we've had a couple of guests on who've run different campaigns over, over a couple year time span and just the way things are changing so rapidly with technology all the time, but especially with campaigns, you know, what do you feel like is the biggest difference even within two years on how you're choosing to communicate with potential voters? It definitely was more focused on digital if we're talking about mediums. Nothing, I think, replaces uh, personal contact with voters. One of the things I definitely noticed even in, you know, three years from 2016 to 2019, people are less likely to uh, answer their phone if you're phone banking. They're more likely potentially to open their door if you're uh, canvassing. One thing that we did this year that was still, I feel like, pretty new three years ago was text banking. And it's mm-hmm. amazing that the people who wouldn't respond to a phone call will respond to an unknown number uh, on their cell phone and just have a texting conversation back and forth. So that was pretty much uh, the, you know, the biggest difference. I think you still have to do a, a, a little bit of traditional media, a little bit of mail to go along with it because you're trying to hit as many people as possible. But certainly upping the ability to do paid social media promotion is also a, a, a big change. And I think it's a big change because of the 2016 election. It's a lot harder to do. You have to go through a vetting process with uh, 
companies like Facebook or Instagram to verify that you're a real person and who's paying for this ad and whatnot. And that's just things that we didn't have to deal with in 2016. And since you just lived through it, do you feel like Twitter made the right decision on their recent policy with political ads? Do you feel like Facebook should change theirs? What's your ultimate take on that? I've never used paid uh, media on Twitter. I think especially for a hyper-local race, you know, the folks who are paying attention on Twitter are already pretty engaged and might already have their their minds made up on the, the candidates that they're supporting. I really think that... Um, you know, paid social media, when you look at the metrics, especially in the local races, I'm not sure if it's a, it's a good expenditure. It might be an expenditure that a campaign uh, should make. But I really think that, you know, blasting your, your, your messages through social media that's paid, I don't really know how effective it is. I think it does, can lead to disinformation, especially if you have a company like Facebook that's blatantly not willing to uh, take down false advertising. And I think Twitter did make a good decision. If they're not going to wade in on the validity of political messages and how truthful they are, then maybe you should just take them all down completely. And when you were canvassing, knocking on people's doors and talking to folks in person, what were one or two things that you heard the most often? In our town, we're a town that was founded in 1757 or 1759. And so the downtown area is pretty much a, a grid system. There's historic buildings. There's only so much road expansion you can have. And, and that's where traffic bottlenecks very naturally. And so that was one of the, the top concerns for, for folks. Followed by uh, taxes, water rates, and affordable housing. So I really think that really things into either traffic or uh, affordability. And it was very interesting. We've not raised our taxes except for once in the last 12 years as a town. However, because we're also the county seat, a lot of folks uh, believe we've been raising their taxes when it's actually been the county. So that was interesting. And water rates. I mean, we have a fairly... Uh, high water rate for us, especially for a small town. We also are nationally recognized as having one of the best water systems uh, in the state. So I think the opportunity to do campaigns also allows you the opportunity to really get out there and explain to people, you know, here's what you're getting out of, uh, out of this now, out of what you're paying for. Now, the, the hardest one was, of course, affordable housing because North Carolina being a modified Dillon's rule state, there's only so much we can do at a local level to alleviate uh, the issues of affordable uh, affordability and affordable housing. And, and really, I think that needs to be a more national conversation anyway, because when we're talking about affordable housing, we're talking about the symptom of the much larger problem, which are which is the fact that wages have stayed stagnant and people are not getting paid for the work that they're doing. Um, and that's one of the reasons I believe affordable housing uh, is uh, such an issue currently. Um, and that's something we have to tackle. Now, what we can do in North Carolina is pretty limited, but we do have the ability to work with local agencies and, and nonprofit partners. Um, but until we have A, that national conversation that actually gets us somewhere, and B, more tools from the state of North Carolina, uh, it, it's really hard and it sometimes feels like you're tinkering around the edges. Yeah, that makes sense. When we come back, we'll talk to Matt a little bit more about what is on his agenda once he is off and running in his newly elected seat. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Zag. We'll be right back.
So Matt, how many people are you serving with and what are they like? Um, well, I, I serve with uh, five other individuals, four commissioners, and um, not including myself, and then the mayor. Um, and really the great thing is it's a very uh, collegial atmosphere. Uh, many of us have been elected uh, or appointed since 2013. Um, so we're a really new board, and when our uh, mayor steps down in a few weeks, uh, it will be almost a completely new board than, than what existed just uh, four years ago. Um, and so, you know, we, we're very collegial. We are uh, very opinionated, but we don't allow um, for those differences to impede our working relationship. We just have very set views on some things, but we're also willing to work things out. Um, one of the criticisms that I get sometimes is you guys always uh, pass these unanimous decisions, whether it's ordinance changes or uh, rezoning requests or what have you. But usually that, uh, that those unanimous decisions is because throughout the process, we've negotiated, we've uh, made concessions, we came to a solution that we could live with, even if it wasn't everything that we agreed with. And I feel like that really sets us apart from other municipalities in Orange County, North Carolina, and then also uh, from other local governing bodies that I have friends who serve on those bodies, because really sometimes folks just look around the room, count to a majority, and then call a vote. And I really don't think that is a uh, healthy or helpful way to enact policy. I really think you have to have skin in the game and buy-in for those policies to uh, be successful, especially when, you know, members of that board have to go out and really make the sell uh, to the folks. And, you know, if there's a lot of dissension or majority votes, um, I think that eventually just leads to hurt feelings and it kind of undermines your policy implementation. I think one of the things we don't talk too much about once folks like NLC alums are elected is, is how they build a staff or how that staff works. Do you have access to funds that will get to hire a couple people, or does it end up being a pretty solo operation? How does that work? In, in many um, in many jurisdictions in North Carolina, it, it's pretty solo. I mean, if you are in a city like Charlotte or Raleigh, you might have access to um, some additional staff, but um, so many of us are doing doing our own thing. I'm also a member of the Young Elected Officials Network, mm -hmm. and I'm amazed at folks all over the country who have an actual staff, even at a municipal level or or a level or, or, or an elected office, I didn't know you could actually elect um, in other places. And so um, it ends up though, meaning that I'm dealing a lot with constituents on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Of course, we have municipal staff, but do I have someone who reports to me directly um, to help me with my schedule or get the word out or run my social media. No, but I feel like that definitely keeps me a lot closer to my constituents. Yeah. And then last thing, I feel like North Carolina usually plays some type of outsized role in national politics. And I, I think that'll be true in some ways for 2020. What kind of things should people pay attention to in your state as we get closer to November? Well, I think that when we're we're looking at North Carolina, there's so much that is going to be at stake, especially since we're an unusual state that in the presidential year, our entire really government apparatus to some extent is up for election in the executive and legislative branches, plus a U.S. Senate race. And that's that's unusual, right? And a lot of states don't have that during a presidential year. And so, you know, I think there's a lot to be looking at, whether it's our legislative races, 
Uh, can the Democrats flip one or both chambers uh, of the General Assembly? I think the answer is yes. Um, I might be biased in that, but that has implications for redistricting, yeah. right? Um, but then also we've got really perhaps one of the greatest contrasts in a governor's race um, between really kind of like the Tea Party Republicans who took over in 2010 if their uh, lieutenant governor wins the Republican nomination versus a fairly moderate, middle-of-the-road, well-liked um, governor, Democratic governor, who's actually enacted progressive policies through um, through his office. So I think it's going to be probably the the same sort of um, the same sort of uh, bellwether that you see in in all over uh, the country. But I really think that one of the keys to Governor Cooper winning re-election will be very similar um, to how. Governor John Bell Edwards and uh, Governor-elect Andy Bashir won their races in Louisiana and Kentucky, respectively, which is Republicans will nominate an extreme candidate who's focused on social issues and division versus a moderate Democrat uh, with a progressive record who's going to appeal to a greater swath of voters. Yeah, that's yeah, well said. Well, listen, congrats on your victory, and thanks so much for coming on to the Zag, and thanks everyone for listening to this episode. You can catch all past episodes, and there's a lot, almost 160 now. Get those episodes at all the places you get your podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google. It's all there, short and sweet. I think you'll enjoy them. So until next time, take care. <laughs>